Native Circles, a podcast for Indigenous experiences and conversations. Dedicated to Native American and Indigenous histories from Indigenous voices and lived experiences. We talk each month with historians and intellectuals committed to working with and for Indigenous communities, especially to share Indigenous stories. Within a circle of respect, trust, and compassion. Amagaklak. Hi, this is Sarah, and I am joined today by my co-host, Farina. Yate. Hello, it's Farina. Today, we have Dr. Kendessa Tehi joining us, and she is a Cherokee Nation citizen and is a member of the Cherokee Tribal Council. She has a PhD in anthropology from the University of Oklahoma. She is also an accomplished artist who was recognized as a Cherokee National Treasure for finger weaving in 2019. She previously served as the executive director of Cherokee Heritage Center and as the manager of the Cherokee Language Program and worked in the Office of Curriculum and Instruction at the Cherokee Nation Immersion Charter School. She currently serves as the coordinator for the Cherokee Cultural Studies and Cherokee Education Degree Programs. Welcome, Candessa. Thank you so much for joining us and talking with us today. OCO, thanks for having me. It's uh, it's always great to talk to two amazing Indigenous women about Indigenous issues, so I'm really happy to be here. Yeah. Thank you. Is there anything that you would like to tell us about yourself or add that maybe I didn't include? Oh, no, I think I think you hit all the high points. The only thing I might add is that I said, don't doggy kaha. I have I have three I have three children. My my oldest, she's in school at the University of Oklahoma. My middle one is going to be graduating high school this year from Sequoia High School, which is also celebrating its 150th year of operation. So long, long history of Indian education and Cherokee education here here in uh, here in Tahlequah. And then my youngest is finishing up his eighth grade year out at Briggs, which is an Oklahoma rural elementary school that predates statehood. I love that you included acknowledging your children and shared all that with us. Thank you. And and your motherhood in that way and all mm-hmm. the different roles. Kendessa, it's so great to chat with you. We are colleagues at Northeastern State University and it's always a pleasure to learn from you and that we are so fortunate you are here in in Tahlequah in, in, and it's an honor you know for me to live in Cherokee Nation and this this area beautiful place you shared with us before this conversation uh, a chapter that will be coming out soon in a really remarkable edited volume. I'm looking forward to it. Allotment Stories, Indigenous Land Relations Under Settler Siege, co-edited by Daniel Heath Justice and Jean M. O'Brien. And your chapter, you'll have to help us with Cherokee as, as that is a major part of your work too. mentioned in your biography is all the work you've been doing with Cherokee language vital, vitality, vitalization, you know, and revitalization. But uh, your chapter in English titled, You Can Hear Locusts in the Heat of the Summer. How do you say the title in Cherokee? Gogi Uditlek. Did that go thing? Uneweska Lolo. 
Awesome. Thank you so much. In this chapter, it has a lot of, you know, your personal story, your family story and background. And, and that, uh, as you explained the title, you connected to a quote from Durbin Feeling, who recently passed on and was especially recognized uh, for his work with Cherokee language. And I, I want to start off asking you, you know, what do you hope people gain from this work? What, you know, inspired you in writing this piece and being a part of that collaboration of allotment stories? You know, it's clearly in your family, but how do you articulate that to people? Mm, that's a great question. So throughout the piece, I kind of recall back to sitting on the porch in the summers with my family, with my grandparents, Edu, Elisa Nell, which is uh, my grandma and my, or my grandpa and my grandma. And we've always heard these stories about how we had Creek ancestry, Muscogee ancestry in our family. And, you know, it, it's been oral history. But as I kind of started doing some genealogical work in my family, I found written records that, that, that verified it. So while it was something I always knew, seeing it validated was, you know, it was, it, it felt, it did feel good to kind of see it in the written record, in the historical record there. And I, I think that oftentimes there are a lot of contemporary people in our communities who put a lot of emphasis on blood quantum and on that being kind of like some kind of a marker of authenticity or, or validation when, when blood quantum is so problematic because it's, it's based on pseudoscience. So, you know, on, on my, on my CDIB card, it lists me as four fourths, but we've always had these stories of Creek ancestry and I, I think that, you know, when we start looking into the historical record and kind of start seeing that, you know, we're, we're more than the number on our card and that our family histories are, ha have a lot more complexity than that to them and, and kind of reconciling those things with our, our contemporary, you know, identity as an indigenous person. I think that that's a lot to say. I hope people take away. <laughs> But but I do hope that that people are are kind of taking away that, you know, we have a lot of complexity in our personal histories. And that is that that's something that we can reckon with and and work with as we move forward. And, and we are not the number on our card. I think it's also your language in the piece is so beautiful. It, it it's meaningful, deep. It resonates you paint pictures in our minds as, as you're writing and recalling, you know, like you said, family sitting on the porch and those moments and something as well with the language, uh, I mean, language and Cherokee language, a part of that. I remember you pointed out locus, how you translate that. It could mean, um, what was the other Oh, yeah, yeah. So in Oklahoma in the summertime, really a chorus. <laughs> um, it is unending and it is constant throughout the throughout really the summer months. You kind of almost hear like this buzz 
right in the trees and it, it's it's louder when you're when you're out in the country it's their cicadas and what yeah. they do is they they like come out and they will um, um like they will emerge from their old shell and so they'll leave like these brown shells behind and and it's if you've spent any time around oklahoma in the summers or played kind of like Really, I mean, we find them in my backyard in town too. So they're all over the place. But oftentimes people will confuse them for locusts. And the way that you say locust in Cherokee is lol or lolo. And, and so it, it's just kind of a common, I, I would say it's a pretty common mistake that's made quite a bit. And it, you know, I, I never correct anyone because there I, I don't really see a point in doing it. Mm -hmm. But I felt as though that kind of mistaking of a cicada for a locust for making those sounds here in the summer, it was somewhat of a metaphor for the way my ancestor kind of became mistaken for a Cherokee in some ways. So he actually relinquished his Creek citizenship he had been a member of the Arbica Deep Fork Township in Muscogee Nation. He, he actually had to appear before the Dawes Commission and have a ruling made saying that, you know, he could relinquish his Creek citizenship because, you know, during that great land grab that happened during, during the Allotment Act, they didn't care where he registered as a citizen. They only cared that he received one allotment and did not receive allotment in Muscogee Nation and in Cherokee Nation. That was the only thing they cared about. So it made no matter to them whether he relinquished his Creek citizenship or not. I mean, we could talk for a long time about how unfair the federal government has treated tribal nations. So I kind of saw that as a metaphor for some family history. Yeah, it stood out to me because it's such a way to directly illuminate for people where this is entirely a new story to them, but these are stories are part of you and your family and, and these backgrounds, you know, of, of giving the, that symbolism and, and direct example there. And you said something to the effect of locust or cicada, the song is still the same, something to, to that effect, which was really powerful. You also cite interviews from the Dawes Act Commission, and I found that to be really fascinating. What was your experience, you know, finding, engaging with those sources and the way that you bring in parts of the interview in your chapter? Yeah, so, so interestingly, there are a couple of different roles that individuals, if they're seeking, you know, genealogical information, that they might be able to draw on. And so one of them are um, the Dawes enrollment packets, and sometimes they're referred to as jackets. But if you find, you know, an entry for your ancestor on the Dawes roll, then you can actually go in and usually find an interview that that person did or that someone did on behalf of that person because during during the Dawes allotment era there was some resistance to allotment and some people actually were enrolled by others because there was i believe economic incentive so sort of like a bounty for enrolling people who were resisting enrollment so so sometimes when you start looking into that paperwork some of it is kind of off 
then there's another set of roles, uh, the, the Guillaume Miller roles, and those are extremely comprehensive. The individual is interviewed themselves. They list maternal kin, paternal kin, places of birth, dates of birth, uh, dates of death for, for almost all of their relatives that they have the information for. And sometimes there'll be English names and Cherokee names, and it's really a rich text, you know? So it was the Guion Miller where I saw applicant rejected, applicant is a creek. And, and then when I went back and pulled kind of the Dawes enrollment jackets, especially for my ancestor, uh, Jack Teehee, he had a creek enrollment jacket, and then he had a Cherokee enrollment jacket. And that's where I was able to actually read through those interviews, which I think were, they were done right near uh, the beginning of the 20th century. And it's amazing from like those primary documents to hear your ancestor speaking to you. I, I think that is just, uh, that, that was the most striking thing for me. And in one of the enrollment packets, there was also a thumbprint of, of one of my ancestors. And so even though I'm not touching that actual original document, it's kind of amazing to think that, man, it, you know, it's like one step away from an ancestor that I never had the opportunity to meet. I've only met through stories and, uh, and through these interviews. I really was moved by kind of the experience that he went through of having to choose <laughs> between the two tribes. And you wrote, the father officially cut ties with Creek Nation, ceding his rights to Creek citizenship and ties to Creek land to solidify his connection to his wife, to his family, to their ceremonial grounds, and to Cher Cherokee land. I now recognize the enormity of the choice for the father, an old soldier who had not witnessed removal but had come of age in its reverberation how many layers of decision that and how that must have felt i i'm part simtian but i'm also part Tlingit, and i can't imagine having to choose mm -hmm. and unenroll my citizenship with one group mm -hmm. and the fact that that was what he was basically forced to have to choose absolutely yeah that's something it, that, that that's definitely something mm -hmm. that that i think about as well because you know, he, he, was, he was raised largely in Cherokee Nation, according to um, at least like his Guillaume Miller application, which goes into a little bit more depth on how his mother brought him to Cherokee Nation and how he, he kind of came of age in, in Cherokee Nation at Cherokee Ceremonial Grounds, married a Cherokee woman. And then when allotment happened, there was a real fear that if people found out he was Creek, that he may be forced to leave Cherokee Nation and his family and the life that he's known and, and really the only place that he's known in his own memory. Yet he was still proud, a proud Muscogee person. He was still a proud Creek citizen at that time to the point where he never stopped using his language. 
he was someone who may have been bilingual, may have been trilingual in, you know, Cherokee, Creek, and English, but my understanding is that he, he was at least bilingual in Cherokee and Creek, continued using his language to a degree that his son also spoke Creek and Cherokee as well. So he, he had to have had a lot of pride in, in who he was as, as a Muscogee person. There is something that's fortunate in that Creek ceremonial ways, Muscogee ceremonial ways, and Cherokee ceremonial ways have a lot of overlap. So that may have been a place where he was able to speak to God in, in Muscogee, and he knew that God heard him, heard his prayers carried up on, on the smoke from the fire in the same way it would have if he was at Vansna Arbica. It had to have been... You know, he made the decision for his family, but it, it had to have nonetheless been an extremely difficult decision for him. Yeah, because he still had those ancestral ties to Creek. Like you well, don't, yeah, you don't let go of that. It's still part of you. It's still something you think of. It's right. So it had to have been a difficult situation, but the best one he made was for himself and for his family. And I respect that and appreciate it, but it's difficult accepting that he was even forced to choose. You know, that's that's where I'm like, he shouldn't have been forced to choose. choose. <laughs> yeah. I absolutely agree. I absolutely agree. There was no real mechanism to kind of account for those complexities of identity and attachment and connection because we see, you know, the allotment roles are rife with errors. <laughs> you know, there are a lot of problems with our allotment roles from individuals who were full siblings being written down with different blood quantums because they had different like phenotypical features. Individuals, their ancestry blood quantum being skewed in certain ways or, you know, individuals from blended families you know, in Cherokee Nation at in, at that point in time, there were still a lot of pre-contact lifeways that were still kind of in effect. And in those days, if for, for, well, at least for ceremonial people, the woman who you married, you became part of her people and part of her community and part of her family. And so if she already had a child, then you fathered that child just as if that were your blood descendant because that was what was important because you had married that child's mother. So in some cases you see it's a point of argument whether it's the wrong father or the right father that gets written down as the, as, uh, as the child's parent. Yeah, there's the, the Dawes allotment committees and decisions and commissions. They don't account for any of that complexity. That is, that's real in our communities. Thank you for sharing that. I know we're barely scratching the surface of the Dawes Act, but I really appreciate all the research and your willingness to share what your ancestors' experience was. The other thing that stood out to me that you said is that some of what influenced your drive with language, you wrote in your book, the way things are spelled in the different languages, and I appreciated that I could get to the end and be like, okay, what does this mean? And, and see the translation. And you wrote, I have dedicated my life and my career to the Cherokee language. And at the end of that same paragraph, you wrote, 
Like many others in their generation, they thought English proficiency would equip me for success, while Cherokee fluency might hinder me in that pursuit. I just see that tie with past generations and how we've missed hearing those languages too. I, I loved hearing my grandmother speak, even though I had no idea what she was saying, it was beautiful. And so I think at least with my generation, with younger generations, there is that desire to hear that again. Yeah, I, I find it really powerful what you said that you love hearing the language, even though you might not be able to understand everything that's being said. I have so many students who, who come into classes who say that exact same thing because, um, you know, we saw a real concerted effort, um, a, a concerted assimilative effort from, um, from the U.S. government that was really encoded in federal policy, enacted in all these multiple different ways to really punish people if they weren't only speaking English to such a degree that we saw in the 60s and 70s two fluent Cherokee speaking parents who are speaking English to their children because that's just how pervasive that I, I would say almost, you know, really genocidal efforts of, of the US of the US government were toward indigenous communities and indigenous peoples, indigenous cultures, lifeways, languages, and everything. I was really fortunate to grow up with parent or grandparents who were first language Cherokee speakers. And I have, you know, aunts and uncles who are first language Cherokee speakers. My mother is bilingual. I grew up in a really tight knit community where I heard Cherokee all the time, but it was always the adults speaking it to each other. And they were never speaking Cherokee to our generation. So we, we picked up what the language should sound like. And we, there are a lot in my generation who can understand more than they can actually produce because no one ever expected us to speak Cherokee back. You know, if someone asked us a question in Cherokee, they expected us to answer in English. And, and that's just, that's just kind of how things were. So I've always had a, a fire to try and understand more than I did. Reaching for fluency. I like the metaphor that it's like running toward the horizon. It always seems just as far as it was from when you started and you only really see how far you've come when you turn around and look back. And I, I think language learning is very much like that. The, the more you learn, the more you realize you don't know. Cherokee elder, uh, who's no longer with us, uh, Benny Smith, Chigesa, you know, he would say, the mark of true character is to be a better person than you were. There's no superiority. There's no value in being superior to other people. And that's why we shouldn't compare ourselves to one another. So, you know, we shouldn't compare ourselves to other learners or to speakers. We just need to think, where are we better than we were yesterday, you know, in our journey toward language? That's what I tell my students. That's what I try and tell myself when I have bad days or, or get discouraged. We've always been told that our language was given to us by Unet Lenin and that if we want him to really understand our heart we need to use that language to speak back in our prayers and uh i'm always apologizing for my broken cherokee the way dude and lisi apologize for their broken english but i'm doing the best i can and i hope that people people see that and people know that and i hope that my students see the example i try to set and uh and, and keep working as hard as i can 
Thank you for sharing that. I think it's important for other people to hear that and just accept where they're at in their own journey of reconnecting. Thank you. Yeah, there's a woman, her name's uh, Dr. Eva Garut. She's Cherokee. And one of the first presentations I heard her give about language learning, especially learning Cherokee, because it's very different than English. So, so different than English. Um, she said, the first thing you have to do is embrace your shame. <laughs> she said, because we always think we should, oh, we should know more. We should be better. We should know more. You know what? She's like, set that aside. Just embrace where you're at and move forward because that's the only way you're going to get better. And so I've always remembered that. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I, as someone with um, my father being a fluent speaker, his first language, it's really painful to me every time about like why he didn't speak to us. Very similar experience in terms of my cousins, my, my best friends who have Diné speaker parents, and they were, it was so ingrained in them. It was so beaten into them. Actually, sometimes literally of this language is not worth anything and how that was tied also to identity. When you hurt the language, you hurt the people, you know, you're hurting the posterity and the children. So I think that's also really powerful from your work and why the parts about those DAWs, uh, DAWs roles, the DAWs commission interviews, and you bring up some interesting points about language and um, give a sense of you wish you were there to actually listen and speak to the people. I, I loved that because there's a lot not written on the page, like these DAWs commission those are white settler sources, but it's like, how do we get at the voices and unpack the language that we know is there in these sources? So I think your work also pushes the way people think about history, which has been very Eurocentric, you know, very like based in, in English. How can we stretch our minds and try best to notice, you know, and figure that out? how did you do that? You know, in your work, how, how did you see beyond what was on the page to envision the Cherokee speakers, your family, even Muscogee language in the past and why that matters to understanding these lived historical experiences? Oh, that's a great question. <clears throat> so as I was reading through kind of the interview, I was really interested in how Jack, which I think was my great, great, grandfather answered the question, you know, are you a full-blood Indian? Are you a Cherokee? And of course, both the times he says, no, you know, adopted Cree. And that's what it ends up saying on his uh, Dawes enrollment form. And then I noticed that there was an interpreter there, Wallace Thornton, and that he was the same interpreter for Jack, who was the father, I guess we could say. And then the son, Jess, it was the same, same interpreter for both their enrollment interviews are only like four apart. I think one is 92, one is 96. You know, there's the honorific in there, yes, sir. And we've had multiple conversations in, in language learning about how there's no English honorific equivalents. Like there's no Mr., there's no Mrs. I have a PhD, so some people call me doctor. They'll say, Ganakti Uktohusa which is like, Ganakti is also what they use for like a, an MD 
or a doctor of medicine. And so that Uktohusen is about uh, knowledge. So it's like I'm a doctor of knowledge, basically. Those are kind of negotiated honorifics, right? So I know we didn't have a mister. We, I know we didn't have a sir. And those things are all right there on the page. So there has to be some sort of negotiation that happened, some sort of kind of filling in the blank. There's some kind of a rupture, right, between what the Cherokee contained versus what the English can convey. I really wish I had known how the interpreter asked, because there are different ways to say, like, are you Cherokee? Are you Indian? You know, are you full blood? Like, you know, did he just ask him, like, he calis? Like, are you, are you full? Are you full Indian? Or did, you know, I'm like, how did he ask him? I wish, maybe, I wish there was a Cherokee transcript too. It was me reading that and realizing there are all of these kind of moments of disconnect. They're all there if you kind of take a moment. <laughs> They're all there. They're all present. I really wish there was a recording or a Cherokee transcript. And like, so was Wallace Thornton. He was interpreting, but was he interpreting in Cherokee? Did he also speak Creek? I have a lot of questions even after reviewing all the packets. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it, it also says something of, again, that privileging of knowledge that was happening in these kind of, that's a colonizing process, right? That they didn't Absolutely. write down the transcript in Cherokee, you know, again. they didn't care about that part, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it doesn't mean like it wasn't there. That's like erasure, erasure right then. In Absolutely. The stuff. So I have a quick follow-up question with that. And then I know um, Sarah will have a closing question as we're respecting your time. And thank you so much again for all these great insights. We really look forward to the book coming out and recommend it to everyone we know. But uh, my question for you is how involved you are with Cherokee Nation and politics and, and society today and all these different movements, what do you feel or sense is the important takeaways, you know, the important message you want to convey from this kind of work, you know, your contribution to allotment stories and why it matters for the present day and envisioning future of the audiences you really want to touch with this and its meaning, you know, that you really hope people grasp or have a sense of. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I encounter with students is that there's so much that is unknown by, I would say, the general public. And Indian history is American history. Indian history is Oklahoma history. And I think that's something that's really lost. So I would hope that individuals who are not scholars of American Indian studies might take a edited volume like this and realize there are so many stories about the irrevocable impact of allotment. Millions and millions of acres of Indian land were were seized under the color of law through allotment. And it also set into place these roles that continue to impact people's lives. If individuals were not in jurisdiction, then they may have been left off the roll completely. 
there's a, a small fraction of people who kind of continue to live with that legacy today. So I would really hope that when someone takes a volume like this or, or looks at a text like this or even just excerpts my one chapter, that it shows them how deeply actions of the federal government in history continue to have a real life impact on contemporary indigenous people and really everyone in the United States. That's, that's what I would hope. Thank you. I, I would like to end with, you share a story in the book of when you were a kid and a classmate lost some money and you were immediately blamed for it. In that story you wrote, by anyone's definition, we were full bloods because of the way we lived. This distinction caused us to be the only ones searched when our classmates' money went missing too. I found it interesting, just that distinction. Yeah, yeah. So I mentioned I grew up in a really tight-knit community that was based around ceremony. And so mm -hmm. the other kids who... I I saw there, we were all there. We were taking part in ceremony, dancing and playing ball, playing stick ball, things like that. We all kind of knew who each other were. We all kind of had, you know, similar, similar style life ways. We all look Indian <laughs> too, but we also went to school with people who we knew they were Cherokee, but they didn't do any of those things that we did. And oftentimes it, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not trying, I'm trying to not paint with too broad a brush, but on the other hand, this is the real lived experience that I have too. So we, you know, we all kind of rode on the same bus line. We all kind of lived in the same area. When the money came up missing, they pulled all of us out of class. These other Cherokee students who didn't do the things that we did, they left them in class. And they, as far as I know, they didn't even question them. That has been a similar type experience for me growing up where, and I'm not sure if it's, uh, you know, if it's more of a coral, correlation to religious expression. We weren't in Christian churches. We were at ceremonial grounds. I'm not sure if we were kind of, in some cases, singled out because of because of that, or if it was because we were perceived to be more full blood because of that kind of ceremonial association. I'm not really sure about that. I just know that that's the experience that I can speak to as my lived experience growing up. And um, there are still times where, where I face that. It's the way, the way that works. Thank you for clarifying. I think I read that a little differently because it, where you wrote that they lined up the Indian kids. I didn't understand that it was the indigenous children that participated in cultural traditions that they lined uh, up. So I didn't yeah. make that distinction. <laughs> Cherokee nation right now, we have 400,000 citizens and it's extremely diverse extremely yeah. diverse. We have a lot of Cherokee citizens who I, I'm, I'm unsure of really how to phrase this. I've had friends who meet this description, have different preferences. So one of those friends of mine, she said she prefers to be described as white coated because she, you wouldn't know she was Cherokee unless she told you. 
essentially. That broad diversity in Cherokee Nation can sometimes lead to some Cherokee citizens kind of being marked as being Cherokee, whereas others kind of have the fluidity of being able to share that with you without having to carry some of these other experiences. Thank you. Yeah, I, I appreciate this is difficult conversations, but important to these everyday issues and reminding people that there's not these clear dichotomies. And as, as I think this conversation began and your work really under it's underpinning messages too are the complexities and that's the realities as well. And, and there's harm. And I think violence too, when these forced binaries happen that really divide people as well of, of what's, what's humanity, what's the human experience and, and how do we relate and how do people treat each other? And why? Why do they treat each other in these various ways? Thank you. Indigenous communities tend to be much more inclusive than that kind of edit perspective that is looking in on us. They tend to be a little bit more divisive and, and more, you know, they subscribe more to those kind of false binaries. But Indigenous communities are much more accepting of those complexities. Yeah, thank you for saying that. I appreciate you kind of exploring those different aspects and sharing your knowledge. And yeah, I feel like I've learned so much from from just reading and talking to you this little bit. So thank you. Well, I got to say thank you both for having me. Thank you so much for asking some really great questions. And I felt like we had a great conversation and I, I really enjoyed visiting with you for this time. Yeah. Wado, thank you so much. Ahit. We will definitely be sharing the link to the book Allotment Stories coming out soon. It's March 2022, right, Candessa? So. I believe so. All right. Well, we will certainly link that to the episode and look out for all the great work that Dr. Candessa Tihi is doing. Wado, thank you. Thank you. <laughs>